respiratory illness with similarities to SARS has healthcare workers around the world on alert. The outbreak of a mystery virus in China. A new virus has been discovered that has pandemic potential. The biggest concern is that it could become airborne. The majority of the cases are in China, where the virus was first reported on December 31st. At least 45 people have contracted the virus. Animal is probably the source of this new virus. At some point, this virus jumped from animals to humans. It is now spreading across Asia. And while the risk of U.S. outbreak is still low, majority of Americans, the risk is very low. A SARS-like virus, which has infected hundreds in China, has now reached the United States. The first case of the deadly Chinese coronavirus making its way to the U.S. He came to Seattle January 15th, and within a day he's diagnosed. It is a coronavirus. We don't know how contagious it is. Now called COVID-19. COVID-19. Over 100 cases in more than a dozen states. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. Stay at home. That is the order tonight from four state governors. We've been asking people to stay at home during this pandemic. If you were planning to see friends this weekend, maybe don't. What you're talking about is our 15 days to stop the spread initiative. We should be acting as if we have the virus, as Tony Fauci said. Stay at home. The message was met with skepticism. Shoppers stocking up on necessities. Shelves that usually hold toilet paper wiped clean. Shoppers rush into a Los Angeles Costco this morning with this warning. Supplies are being rationed keep up with the unprecedented coronavirus panic shopping. Many people are buying too much, leaving empty shelves. Over these last few weeks, stay-at-home orders have turned America's densest and most vibrant cities into virtual ghost towns. Strict lockdown laws have turned the global city into a ghost town. We turn to Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health. The 15 days that we had of mitigation clearly have had an effect. When we extended the guidelines from the 15-day guidelines to now 30 days. COVID-19 lockdown has been extended indefinitely in China's Chengdu city. 26 million people confined to their homes and no end in sight. This whole kind of dynamic of profiteering and the divergence of, of vaccination and the regulatory process really arcing towards corruption, control, and private profit, the pharmaceutical industry, accelerated or amplified dramatically after the meeting between Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates in 2000. Those two men had kind of a synergistic effect on each other. So you have the, the entire biomedical research and the medical cartel globally now controlled by a tiny handful of men with Gates and Fauci driving it. And you've had this giant diversion of foreign aid dollars away from the traditional interests and intentions of foreign aid. Now virtually a huge percentage of it going to the vaccine only and with no accountability, with nobody actually saying, 
are more lives being saved? Is quality of life improving? Is public health improving? It's just an ideology, it's a religion. And there are high priests of that religion and you're not allowed to question them. Starting with AIDS and going through everything, uh, SARS and MERS and Zika and bird flu, they have one thing in common, Fauci at the center. We had the anthrax spore attacks. We did SARS in 2002, MERS 2003, bird flu in 2005, H1N1 2009. This is same playbook, different virus. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation put up $10 billion in 2010 to make the decades of vaccines to be from 2010 to 2020. Another day of germ warfare and still no sign. The worst case of bioterrorism in this country. America strikes back. Anthrax, another infection. This time at NBC News and Rockefeller Plaza. In just a week's time, we have had four confirmed cases of anthrax, all with media connections and a number of anthrax scares as well. On October 5th, 2001, almost a month after the September 11th terrorist attacks on New York City, the Pentagon, and Western Pennsylvania, terror of another type struck. President Bush tries reassuring the nation after anthrax is found at a facility that handles mail going to the White House. One week after 9-11, there was an anthrax attack. The anthrax attacks precipitated a new interest in our intelligence community and the Pentagon in bioweapons development. The Pentagon wanted to start developing bioweapons again, but it knew the only way it could legally do that is if it told the public and it was developing vaccines, and it was nervous that nobody would believe them. And so instead of doing the studies themselves, they began funneling the money through Tony Fauci. Ultimately, if civilians are going to need protection against anthrax, the answer may be found in a new vaccine. Dr. Fauci thinks the events of September 11th will speed that process. In, in usual times, that, that's a process that takes years and years, but I can tell you the amount of time that it's going to take, given the urgency of the situation, is going to be markedly truncated. I was there at the time when that was really launched. I know a lot of the people, I know where a lot of the bodies are buried, the nuance of what happened there, of the various groups that ended up acting in corrupt ways over time. I saw the uh, initiation of the company that we now call Emergent Biosystems and its role in aggressively protecting its estate, exclusive estate, in anthrax vaccines. At Dyneport Vaccine Company, I took a position as the Associate Clinical Research Director. I played a role in almost all of the biodefense products. At that time, the Vice President of the United States, Dick Cheney, engaged in uh, enabling a whole new biodefense infrastructure, really a whole new segment of the medical industrial complex. Robert Cadillac, who's been steeping himself essentially in, in obsessions about anthrax, is added to be the top bioterrorist uh, consultant to Paul Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld immediately after 9-11 in this critical period of just a few weeks uh, leading up to the 2001 anthrax attack. Saving lives in an emergency requires cutting-edge medical countermeasures, medications, vaccines, diagnostics, and more. 
In 2001, he was teaching at the U.S. National War College. During that year, he participated in something called Dark Winter, which was an emergency preparedness game that's controversial in some circles for several reasons, because it took place in June 2001, and there's several aspects of the script of that exercise that ended up being the running narrative of the 2001 anthrax attacks, like the uh, anthrax being sent in letters had previously been gamed out at this Dark Winter exercise. And actually, it's Robert Cadlock who gave the exercise Dark Winter its name. There was a simulation called Dark Winter that didn't come out very well. During June 22nd and 23rd, 2001, less than three months before the 9-11 attacks, the Pentagon launched a war game codename Operation Dark Winter at Andrews Air Force Base that emphasized the military's earnest commitment to bioweapons vaccines. Robert Cadillac was the lead organizer of this pandemic simulation. Dark Winter participants explored strategies for imposing coercive quarantines, censorship, mandatory masking, lockdowns, and forced vaccination, and expanded police powers as the only rational response to the pandemic. It's really important for people to understand the odd chronology of what happened that initiated the biosecurity agenda in our country, which is now the spear tip of American foreign policy. In June of 2001, you had the dark winter simulation scripted by the CIA, which predicted a smallpox attack mounted by somebody who is clearly a Saddam Hussein-like figure. At the same time, you have the Pentagon engage in Operation Bacchus, which is developing a feasibility study for developing a garage anthrax mechanism by which terrorist groups could create anthrax. So it actually creates the model for a terrorist group to create an anthrax attack on our country. If you look at Anthony Fauci's tenure at NIAD, specifically after the 2001 anthrax attacks, he was responsible for the massive funding of numerous biosafety labs throughout the United States, several of which have engaged in gain-of-function experiments uh, during that period of time. Gain-of-function refers to experiments that intentionally modify a pathogen to create the ability to cause or worsen disease, enhance transmissibility, and or create novel strains with the potential to cause global spread in humans. The problem is we don't have enough vaccine to go around. Meaning we don't have enough vaccine for the United States? Well, I would like to think that, but we don't have sufficient uh, stockpiles for the people in Oklahoma, Georgia, or Pennsylvania, much less for the entire United States population. Well, that certainly doesn't sound encouraging. What do you mean exactly? Angie, it means it could be a very dark winter for America. When those attacks happened, it, the investigation quickly revealed that those strains were of a domestic source linked to the U.S. military, and there was no way that it was actually of a foreign origin, as was being suggested at the time. Operation Northwood was a proposal that was put in front of my uncle by his Joint Chiefs of Staff. It was a false flag event. He's the people like General Lemonser and Curtis LeMay with one World War II. And uh, there was no more respect in military leaders in our country. And they said to him, we should plant bombs and kill American citizens and blame it on the Cubans. 
and do a series of other events that would kill, cause mayhem and death in America to American citizens in order to justify an unprovoked attack on Cuba. These were the, the center of the American military, and they were proposing murdering American citizens to create a provocation to invade another country. My uncle heard their proposal, said nothing to them, walked out of the meeting in the middle of the proposal, and said to one of his aides, and we call ourselves the human race. He was disgusted. These were the most respected military and intelligence officers alive at that time. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We cannot exclude the possibility that the anthrax was sent out by somebody within our own government to serve some larger agenda. And the FBI later determined that the anthrax had come from Fort Detrick or one of two other military labs that are operated by the U.S. intelligence agencies and by the United States military. The government agencies and the mainstream media initially pointed to Saddam Hussein as the culprit behind the anthrax attacks. We've seen the enemy. The terrorists cannot be reasoned with. The anthrax attacks were used as a provocation to ram through the Patriot Act with almost no debate and to initiate this war against Saddam Hussein. There's always the potential for bioterror and we have a major biodefense research and development effort that spans agencies from the NIH to do the basic research to be able to develop better vaccines. Having said that, the worst bioterrorist is nature itself. The chances of nature creating something really bad is much better than we mere mortal humans doing it. When no further bioterror attacks occurred over the next 10 years, Dr. Fauci skillfully maintained his annual $1.7 billion biosecurity budget by deftly recalibrating his rhetoric away from bioterrorism hype. Instead, he invoked the new panic of a natural but emerging infectious disease. And ever since 2001, Anthony Fauci has been running around the world like this kind of agitated chicken little, warning everybody about the advent of bird flu or the pandemic du jour, and none of them ever materializes until, of course, they hatch one themselves. Right now, if we had an explosion of an H5N1, we would not be prepared for that. I don't see it as an exercise because it could be the big one. It could be. And if it is, all rushing around, doing what we need to do, pushing the envelope is not for naught or in vain. The pandemic flu, there's no responsiveness and no background immunity of anyone. Another reason why we really have to rev up our preparedness. Nowhere in the world is completely safe when there's an epidemic raging in one part of the world. That 2005 PrEP Act 
was put into legislation at the time that they were running around screaming about bird flu. They came in and gave them complete liability protection for anything that was, de that was developed that was called a covered countermeasure for a pandemic. So they were laying the groundwork for this a long time ago. The Injury Compensation Act was set up. It was supposed to be a watchdog organization, but we've got the fox monitoring the hen house because we have the FDA monitoring complaints against vaccines that are primarily sold by the CDC. So it was never, ever set up the way that it should have been. It's absolutely horrific. It's completely unconstitutional because there is no separation of powers. This is not within the judiciary. It's even more liability protection for industry than under the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Program. If you can show by clear and convincing evidence, you might be able then to take your case to civil court. But the PREP Act is like almost an insurmountable wall. Even with a vaccine, there still would be some suffering and death. We must protect the American people by stockpiling vaccines. In 2005, I was going to Washington, D.C. about every two to three months to go into the pandemic planning meetings, pandemics associated with bird flu. And it wasn't until a little bit later that we realized that these coronaviruses had been weaponized through illegal gain-of-function research to weaponize the spike proteins and that that was what was falling underneath the EUA so that people could be injected with these shots with a weaponized spike protein. So it wasn't just garden variety coronaviruses that were causing flu. In 2009, they created a swine flu epidemic which of course never happened. It was declared a pandemic. There were 40 million uh, vaccines distributed. And again, they caused uh, Bell's palsy and Guillain-Barre and a lot of other neurological injuries. The vaccine ultimately had to be pulled. 46 states are reporting H1N1 as widespread, with more than 1,000 deaths and 20,000 hospitalizations. And while an average case is usually no more dangerous than other flu, this strain has its unknowns. 30% of the deaths are in healthy people with no underlying problems. President Obama decided to declare the epidemic a national emergency of swine flu, and around the country, people were lining up waiting for hours to get vaccinations. But there are only 11 million doses available, far short of the 40 million expected by this time. We need hospitals and healthcare providers to continue preparing for an increased patient load and to take steps to protect healthcare workers. We need families and businesses to ensure that they have plans in place if a family member, a child, or a co-worker contracts the flu and needs to stay home. And we're also making steady progress on developing a safe and effective H1N1 flu vaccine, and we expect a flu shot program will begin soon. This program will be completely voluntary, but it will be strongly recommended. This morning's Flu Watch, vaccine side effects. Government health officials say they have worked very hard to make sure the H1N1 vaccine is safe for everyone. However, one rare, and we should emphasize rare, side effect of flu vaccines is starting to show up around the country. This is 14-year-old Jordan McFarland. Weeks ago, he was an athletic young man playing sports. Now he needs a walker to move from room to room. It's an aching 
but it's 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 also a pain that I can't describe. Doctors told Jordan's parents he has Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS, a rare illness in which the immune system attacks the nervous system. Jordan's family believes the H1N1 vaccine is to blame. 24 hours after he received both the seasonal and swine flu vaccines, he was hospitalized. During the 1976 swine flu scare, officials vaccinated 45 million people. Of those, almost 1,100 developed GBS. If you really look at the scientific data, it is unclear why that happened. Clearly, the risk of the complication of the disease is greater than the risk of the vaccine. We hear from a physician in Durham, North Carolina. Good morning. Hi, good morning, Dr. Fauci. Good and, morning. Um, Pedro. Um, you've been at the NIH a pretty long time, and it seems to me that during your tenure, our ability to control infectious diseases hasn't improved, but in fact worsened. And don't you think it's time that you step down and let someone else who has a more effective message? <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> And then Ebola, which, although it was much smaller, uh, there was some luck involved in that. Because it wasn't spread through uh, respiratory contact, the reproductive rate was a lot lower, and you know, it was basically people who were sick or dead uh, who were doing most of the transmission. I wasn't involved in any of the evidence synthesis for around Ebola, but I am aware of a key document and, and a meeting that was held in September 2015 for sharing research and data during public health emergencies. These participants included the Wellcome Trust, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It included members of big pharma such as J&J, &J, Glasgow SmithKline, uh, Takeda Vaccines, Sanofi, and also um, the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association. Remdesivir is a toxic drug. You know, they tried it for Ebola and they actually had to abandon the study because of the increased risk of death. We know that remdesivir increases the risk of renal failure, that's kidney failure, at least 20-fold. And this is based on the World Health Organization data. Today we're announcing a commitment over this next decade, uh, which we think of as a, a decade of, of vaccines. They were ramping up the pediatric schedule. They were ramping up the requirements for schools. They started passing laws where you, they took away your exemption rights that you had a right to refuse because they wanted all those kids vaccinated. If all those kids are vaccinated, they become mostly customers for life with their asthma, allergies, eczema, ADD, ADHD, insulin-dependent diabetes. You don't see those illnesses in healthy, unvaccinated children. So we needed to push that forward to create a, a generational customers for life life because the drug companies blockbuster drugs were running out of patents because patents are about 20 to 22 years. Somebody gave me a transcript of a secret meeting that had occurred between the leading public health officials and the pharmaceutical industry and it occurred in the year 2000. And the precursor of that meeting was an internal study that had been done in 1999 by CDC. Following this explosion in the vaccine schedule and that began in 1989, we started seeing the beginning of the autism epidemic and an epidemic of other neurological and autoimmune diseases. And when the first data set came back, it was shocking. Children who had received that vaccine had an 1135% greater chance of getting a subsequent autism diagnosis than kids who did not. They spend most of the time talking about how 
to hide these associations from the American public. And, and what their strategy will be for conducting studies it ended up being very, very fraudulent studies. I got a hold of that transcript and I published excerpts from it in Rolling Stone and Salon simultaneously. And immediately there was a storm of controversy pressuring Rolling Stone and Salon to take down the article. You know, I was initially shocked to see this level of censorship and the control that the pharmaceutical industry exercises over the American media. I was doing at that time uh, probably 60 speeches a year for a significant part of my income, a lot of them at universities and corporate events. Those speeches disappeared. I was writing every six months an op-ed for the New York Times, and they stopped publishing me not only on vaccine issues, but on any issue, on environmental issues, etc. You get deplatformed if you tell the truth and or if you say anything that challenges government orthodoxies. Let me ask you about vaccines. There's obviously been a controversy with uh, children's vaccines about whether or not they might cause autism. What is your view on that? There, there is, I, mean, I have a strong view on that. There's zero evidence that the vaccines that were in question, particularly measles and MMR, have anything at all to do with the development. Over Christmas vacation, I got a call from somebody in President-elect Donald Trump's office asking me to come meet with the President-elect the 1st of January. I went in to meet with him at Trump Tower. This was maybe two or three weeks before the, his inauguration. And he asked me to chair and to assemble a vaccine safety committee that would look at the safety of the various vaccinations. And I said that I would be happy to do that. Uh, so March 2017 in the White House, he asked me if vaccines weren't a bad thing because he was considering a commission to look into uh, ill effects of vaccines. And, and somebody, his name is Robert Kennedy Jr., was advising him that vaccines were causing bad things, and I said, no, that's a dead end, that would be a bad thing, don't do that. In 2017, when I met with, uh, with Tony Fauci, we had a very, very heated meeting. I was with Aaron Seary, who's another attorney, and Del Bigtree and Lynn Redwood, sat across from the table from him and Francis Collins and the other public health leadership, and I said to him during that meeting, you've been publicly saying that there are safety studies done on these vaccines prior to getting a license. I say that there are none. There was an observer from the White House at that meeting. So he was under some pressure to defend his record. And he said, well, there are studies. And I said, can you show us any? And they made a show of looking through a series of briefcases and files to try to find what they were looking for. And they said, we'll send them to you. And of course, they never sent them. And at the end of that meeting, I was in the hallway and Tony Fauci came up to me and took me aside and had a quiet conversation with me out of earshot of everybody else. And he said, I want to commend you for what you're doing. Um, it's important work, and you keep us all on our toes, so thank you. And that was his message to me. You can be the judge of how earnest he was. 
the president took a million dollar contribution for his inaugural party from Pfizer and then chose two of Pfizer's handpicked candidates, Alex Azar and Scott Gottlieb, to run the public health agencies, and those gentlemen killed the Vaccine Safety Commission. There's no question that there will be a challenge to the coming administration in the arena of infectious diseases, both chronic infectious diseases, and you will understand why history, the history of the last 32 years that I've been the director of NIAID, will tell the next administration that there's no doubt in anyone's mind that they will be faced with the challenges that their predecessors were faced with. There will be a surprise outbreak. It was the market test. It was laying the groundwork for what they needed to do with the fear-based messages to put everybody on high alert, to actually have everybody start talking about this pandemic. SARS, MERS, bird flu, Zika virus, H1N1, SARS, MERS, Ebola outbreak, Zika, bird flu. So we really do have a problem of how the world perceives influenza, and it's gonna be very difficult to change that unless you do it from within and say, I don't care what your perception is, we're gonna address the problem in a disruptive way and in an iterative way, because you do need both. COVID-19.